So kind of an interesting uh, day we have today, and, and many of you know, and we will be sharing a, a little bit at the end of the service, that today is uh, Christian and Annie's last Sunday with us, and we're going to be praying for them and send them off at the end of the service to go do some other ministry things elsewhere, but God in his sovereignty and wisdom has sent us Marcus, who, my name is Randy, his name is Marcus. Apparently, we're going to be confused for the rest of our when I came in 1984, we had another guy I did a uh, pair of church ministry with. And he had a full beard and a lot of hair, and I looked like I do now. My hair was not quite as gray. It was Kim's fault. But there was a lady that used to answer the phone, and she never could tell us apart. So, and she always thought his name was Larry, and my name was Randy, and she never did for years, never did, was able to separate the two. He, and I, I would always walk by and say, Larry's the one with the beard. Back then, I couldn't even grow one. I could grow one now, but it would have 75 colors in it, so I don't do that. All right, I got a challenge for you. I need you to find the book of Haggai. It is in the Bible. I didn't make that up. I wasn't clearing my throat. <coughs> Haggai. H-A-G-G-A-I. If you're using a mobile device, that's easy. For those of you that are born again that are not using a mobile device, <laughs> you can look it up in the table of contents. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in the chair around you somewhere, and it will be the English Standard Version more than likely. Those of us who, again, know Jesus are using the New King James Version, that's because that's the one the Apostle Paul would have used. So it's also the only one I got that has big letters in it. That's the reason that I use it. All right, what I want you to do is find, find Haggai. It's pronounced a million different ways depending on where you're from. If you're from the South, most people pronounce it Haggai, but I think the correct phonetical pronunciation is Haggai, but um, for those of us who understand classical country music, his friends called him the Hag. I'll let you figure out what that means. All right, I want you to put your sermon outline in Haggai, and then I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be there for just a moment, and then we'll be right back in, in uh, Haggai. Book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Now, if you would take your hand out and look at it for just a second, I know you're using it in Haggai, but just look at the top, finger there, y'all are intelligent, you can handle this. You'll notice, we're going to talk about today God's priorities, to consider your God's priorities as opposed to your own. And it's really important that we understand that this principle. When you study the Bible, you're studying it for one reason. As a believer, when you read the Bible, when you meditate on it, when you listen to someone else preach it or teach it, you have one motivating factor in your life as a Christian. You are trying to find out, God, what do you want me to do? It's called application. I don't want to learn, have knowledge for knowledge's sake so I can impress someone. I want as a believer to get the living word of God into me so rivers of living water can come out of me. I can share the gospel with others. We talk a lot about that today. But anytime you study the Bible, you want to observe the text, interpret the text, and then apply the text. And if you don't apply the text, my favorite saying is, you could do what with the first two? Flush them. If you observe the text, you interpret the text, you find out everything it says, but you don't apply it, you've wasted your time. It is the living word of God. You talked about Hebrews dividing a soul from a spirit. How do you divide something that has no physical being? It's spirit. Only, only a God can do that, and that's what the Word of God is about. 
It's not about me just learning what it says. It's about me applying it so that I'll be different when I get up from, whether it's your personal devotion, whether you're leaving here today, your, your family devotion, your own time studying the Bible, especially if you teach a class. And I don't care if it's children or it's doing what I'm doing at this moment. Anytime you're in the Word of God and you know you're going to share it with someone else, it's a high privilege and a call. And I need to understand God expects Randy to walk away from that time alone with him and be different. So look at Ephesians 2. Let's start there. Remembering we're focusing today on the priorities of God, not mine, not yours, except mine and yours and ours as the church should be God's. So let's focus for a moment on Ephesians 2, verse 18. For through him, Jesus Christ, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Verse 19. Now, therefore, because we have access to to our God, through the Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Ephesians is simply Paul's great treatise on the church, the body of Christ. Now, verse 19 again. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but, that's my favorite word in the Bible. Anytime you see the word but, you're about to read something real important. Not that the rest of the Bible is not important, but God's about to make a point. But, here's what you are. Fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God. And when anytime you see the word saint in the Bible, it's simply referring to really super Christians, right? No, it's referring to any knucklehead who's born again, starting with moi. The Apostle Paul referred to himself as chief among sinners. He's the one that wrote this under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He recalled himself. He, he said, I'm chief among sinners, and what I want to do, I don't want to do. What I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? You know what he sounds like? Me? You? We struggle. And if you struggle with sin, that's a good sign. If you're just cool with it, I ain't worried about it. You got a problem. You should struggle. You don't want, you want to be perfect, knowing you never will be until eternity. The reason Jesus' death satisfied God's demand, and you can be a saint, is because he was perfect. He was God. The sacrifice he made allows you to be declared righteous. Again, I share this all the time in my classes, but just a quick illustration. What I want you to do tomorrow when you get to work, I want you to go up there, everybody you work with, just tap them on the shoulder and gently say to them, if you died in the next 30 seconds, would you go to heaven? And they're going to call for security, but that's okay. You'll get through that. Say, if you died today, are you, are you going to go to heaven? And if they believe in heaven, what's their response going to be? I hope so. Even ones in church. Some of you might, I hope so. And if that's all you got, you're in trouble. That's the, the church I grew up in. That's, that was who we were. And then one day, someone like John Latimer, first Christian I ever really knew, explained to me the gospel, and I heard his brother preaching. I'm like, whoa, that's a little different than what I've always heard in church. You mean I can personally know God? To me, God was a, ah! You better straighten up, dog, or you're in trouble. That's not who God is. Now, notice, back, again, verse 19. We're fellow citizens of the saints and the members of the household of God. Go all the way back to Adam, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel. Pick a, pick a character in the Old Testament that you revere. My favorite is Daniel. What a godly man. What he's saying is, you're part of the same household he was part of. You're in. 
because of who you are. Now look at verse 20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and here's the real focus for today, verse 21. In whom Jesus Christ, remember this phrase as we walk through, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, is building something. Verse 21, in whom the whole building, the fellow citizens, the saints, and members of the household of God, context, that building is being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In other words, we could spend a lot of time on that, and we, but we're not going to, not any more than we already have, except to say this, that's who we are. That's what the church is. We are that building, that temple. That's the key word for today. We are God's temple that he is constantly building. Brick In another place, Peter calls us living stones. I love that oxymoron. We are living stones being built up brick by brick to build God's temple, also known as the church. That's why the great call on our lives as Christians, the commission to the church by Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone to build his building, to build his temple, his commission to us was, as you go into all the world, make learner followers of me, and I will be with you how long? Always, even to the end of the age. Now, here's the point. That was 2,000-plus years ago. Jesus gave the Great Commission. He ascended to heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit, which he had promised he would do. The Holy Spirit dwells where? In us. And by the way, the term dwells means tabernacle. Tabernacle was the forerunner of the temple. If you don't think God is a God of order, structure, and sovereignty, just look at words. He gave him the tabernacle. He gave him the temple. And the temple and the tabernacle represented the presence of God for them. Then he sent Jesus. God himself walked around on earth with us, then Jesus left and sent the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who now dwells in us and is also with us. Jesus said he'll, he'll be with you like I've been, but he'll also be in you. And then Jesus said something that's astounding to me in that upper room discourse. He said, you'll do greater things than I've done. You ever meditate on Scripture? Think, meditate on that one for a minute. You will do greater things than I've done. Well, wait a minute, you're God. You walked on top of water. Only you and uh, I think Bear Bryant are the only two people who have ever done that. You walked on top of water. You called people out of tombs and said, Lazarus, come here. I want to talk to you. And a dead man comes walking out. I'm not going to do that. So what did Jesus mean? That's why you got to look at it in context and you got to look at it in the original language because here's what he meant. You're not going to, Randy's not going to tell people to come out of tombs and they're going to come walking forth. But what we can do because the Holy Spirit is not only with us but in us, all over the planet Earth, as we, the body of Christ, worship our Savior today, greater things in number. Jesus limited himself in space and time to be in one geographical area about the size of West Tennessee while he was on Earth. But boy, then he sent the Holy Spirit, and he told him to go where? To the ends of the Earth, to the ends of the Earth. And 2,000 years later, we're still doing that. Now go to Haggai. Keeping that in your mind, the temple, the temple, the temple. We are the temple. How can we apply what we're about to read in Haggai? It's always about application. What can we apply what we're about to read in Haggai to us being we, the church, are God's temple and his number one priority? We do a lot of things. God has one 
priority for his temple, his building, our commission, it's to build his temple. That's it. There are a lot of other things that we do. But our goal, our reason for existence, the reason the church is still here, we're in the church age, we're in the last days, till Jesus comes back to take comes back and takes his bride, which, by the way, is us, takes us home, we have one job. Keep building that temple. Keep building that temple. Keep building that temple. Brick by brick, person by person, bring them to Christ. Bring them to salvation. See them fit into the temple. Watch it grow. And then one day he will tabernacle with us in the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, and the Bible says it will be illuminated by his presence alone. Man, I get so excited when I read the Bible. Understand it. If, if I can understand it, trust me, you can. Anybody can. All right, look at Haggai. Haggai's an interesting book. I won't give you the whole background. But it, it, Haggai is a prophet that God raised up at the end of the Babylonian captivity. All that was left were the two southern tribes, and they'd been in Babylon captivity for 70 years. God brings them back under Cyrus, the king of Persia. You get to Babylon, you get Persia. Cyrus is raised up by God. He's the king of Persia, the most powerful man in the world, and he issues a decree. The Jews can now go home which, by the way, God had prophesied it would be 70 years. 70 years has gone by. They get to go home. And the decree of Cyrus under, uh, declared to him by God that he then declares to the people is, I want you to go home. I'll give you all the money, all the resources you need, and rebuild the temple. Rebuild the temple. About 50,000 of them go home. They begin to rebuild the temple. They lay the foundation. They put the altar in. They start the sacrificial system. And then... After two years, they just stop. They stop working because of the, the Samaritans. That's what the reason when you, re, you read in, in, in the New Testament, Jews hated Samaritans is because of this. When they came back to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans fought them, got, it, got, got them stopped, and they didn't trust God enough to do God's work. That's the key. God's priorities. Consider God's priorities. They went, were sent back to the land by God to do one thing. What was it? If you get it, don't get anything else today, take this away when you leave here. It was to build his temple. The Babylonians had leveled it 605 B.C. to 586 B.C. Three sieges, they come, they destroy the temple, they destroy Jerusalem, and they level it. There's nothing there but just wasteland. No land, no place, but the land has always been a big deal to Jews. So it gets, now go back to your land. Go back to where you came from. Go back to your place, your home, to your Zion, and rebuild the temple. They start, they're doing what God wants them to do, and then they get apathetic. God raises up three prophets, primarily two, but three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last three books of your Old Testament. Now, these are the last voices of God prior to the coming of John the Baptist. So it was like 400 years goes by after Malachi. So they, the two years go by, and God raises up this man, Haggai. He only preaches for about four months. He has four messages from God, and all of them. Here's the theme of the book of Haggai. Very simple. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. He says it five times. Consider your ways. I told you to rebuild the temple, and you stopped. What are you doing? Why? I told you to build the temple. You're not doing it. Why? Because they'd become comfortable. They'd gotten apathetic. They decided that what they wanted was more important than what God wanted. And so they just kind of put God aside. If you don't think application is the goal for the Bible, and you don't think the Bible is relevant, you're about to see a very graphic illustration from a book you probably never read in detail or ever focused on. 
this little book of Haggai. So the focus from Haggai is this. Be faithful to your God. Be faithful to him. Focus on what he tells you to do and just follow him. They've gotten their priorities all messed up. But rather than going back through all the background of the book, Haggai is the shortest, second shortest book in the Bible or in the, in the Old Testament. You know what the shortest is? Oh, I'll give you something to study when you get home. Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. Haggai is the second shortest. One of the minor prophets. As Brother John said the first hour, minor doesn't mean they're not important. Minor means they're just shorter. That, that's a great theological point. They're just shorter. Not less important. Matter of fact, they're incredibly important, as we're going to see here in just a moment. So one of the fast, those prophets. So let's start in Haggai 1.1. Haggai 1.1. Look. Now you get your handout out. Look at it. First thing we're going to notice is the neglect of the people. The neglect. Look at verse 1, Haggai 1.1. In the second year of King Darius, he is a Mede, and got the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians, historically. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, just a quick note, this is not the Joshua from earlier. This Joshua is this guy. You've got two different things you're going to see here. It's very important. Haggai delivers Notice, it, verse 1, Haggai's delivering to them his personal opinion about some things or what? What does verse 1, 1 say? Haggai is speaking to them what? Word of the Lord. And notice who they are. One is the governor, and the other one is what? The high priest. So he goes to the leadership, and he says to them, hey, boys, God's got a message for you. Both those of you that rule my people, the governor, and those of you who are supposedly leading them in worship and taking them before God, the high priest, the two most important men in the land, the temple that they're going to build ultimately will be called the Rubbable's Temple. And he says to them, God has a message for you. Because if the leaders aren't leading, where are the people going to go? They're going to do the exact same thing. So because the Rubbable and Joshua aren't leading the people, and they're apathetic toward God. What's the attitude of the people? They're apathetic toward God. Just kind of the way it is. So you've got the royal line, and you've got the priestly line. Fascinating, because Jesus is both the king of kings and the great high priest. That's not an accident, by the way. God is showing them, reminding them, showing us, reminding us, Jesus is your king, not another man. Jesus is your great high priest. You go directly into the presence of God because of what happened at the cross. Remember the veil of the temple was torn in two? No more barrier to the presence of God. Hebrews, the entire book of Hebrews is about this theme. Jesus is our great high priest. You go into the presence of God anytime you want to, and every one of you that's a saint is a priest. You take people to God, you take God to people. That's what we do to build his temple. So, what I want you to do is build the temple. Now, look at verse 2. Verse 2. What are the people neglecting? Thus speaks the Lord of hosts. So, you've seen the word of the Lord. Now, thus speaks the Lord of hosts. Verse 2, saying, this people says the time has not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. Woo. I want you to notice one little pronoun there. I love just one little, I could preach for a week on this one little pronoun, but I won't. We'll do it for just a second. You see, how does he describe the people there? Don't miss this, it's real important. 
How's he describe the people there? This people. You see that? Or these people. Does everybody see that pronoun? Or am I talking to myself? If you see that pronoun, would you raise your hand? Okay, good. This people, not. Most of the time when God refers to the Jews, how does he refer to them? My people. My people. Not here. How many of you have children? You ever turn to your wife and say, you know, your son. <laughs> I know uh, Mary does that on a regular basis. My son's 30. And she said, you know, you wanted to have him. <laughs> we had two beautiful daughters. No, you had to have a son. <laughs> Andy's still my son. Sometimes I want to just throw him up against the wall and punch him, but he's, he's my son. All man, 6'3", 6'2", 135 pounds. I think I know where he got that. But anyway, he's always going to be my son. Am I always completely enamored and happy with my children? I want you to turn. No, we won't do this. If, what we're going to do is have everybody come up and confess the, the problems you have with your children. We'll start with Kim because she was, no. I guarantee you, every one of us, even with the, all my children are grown, 30s, 30s, 40s. My children are grown, adults. Now, there are times when I'm not completely enamored with my adult children, right? Let's say you got teenagers. Come on down, let's pray for you. Man, here's what God is saying. I love my people. They are my children. And I will always, this is the remnant that came back. I will always have a remnant. But right now, I ain't real happy with them. I'm not happy. Notice why he's not happy, verse 2. This is the key of the whole book, verse 2. This people says, notice, here's what they say. The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. That's their excuse. It's been 18 years, by the way. They stopped building and then 16 years go by and Haggai comes on the scene. So they've come back now from Babylon. It's been 18 years. You think it's time yet? When did God tell them to build the temple? 18 years previously. When they came, when Cyrus sent them home, God said, go home, you got one job. Build my house. They start on it and then they quit. What's their excuse? Look at verse 2. What's their excuse? That ain't the right time. You know, we got the, we got the Samaritans out there giving us grief. And we got the harvest we got to take care of. And we got this thing to do and that thing to do. We're really going to see where their priority is in just a moment. What they're saying is, we're going to get around to building the temple. We understand God told us to do that. We're going to get around to it. But ain't time yet. When God says build my house and do it now, what time is it? Now. Now. Here's the application I want you to begin to take away from this. What is our call in our lives? We saw over in Ephesians. We are to build what? God's temple. There's no higher calling on our lives individually and corporately as the church of Jesus Christ and in local churches, this particular one called Christ Church. There's no higher call in our lives than to build the temple of God. And if that's not your number one priority as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in sin. Now, it's incumbent upon me as a pastor, and I'm not good at this. I don't like to do it. It's hard. I don't like to talk about money and finances. The elders had to beat me Thursday night to get me to do this. But you know what? It's wrong for me if I don't do this. I have the call to preach the whole counsel of God. Notice their priorities. Their, their, number one, their biggest problem is, verse two, they're procrastinating. They keep putting off what God tells them to do. 
They keep putting it off. It's just not time yet. It's just not time yet. They got good intentions. We're going to get around to that. But it's not time yet. So it's their priority at this point in their lives. God's referring to them as these people. It's their priority to do what God wants them to do. Yes or no? No. Not for them. What's verse 2 tell you? What are they saying? The time is not right to build God's house. What did God tell them 18 years before? Go build my house. So did God change his mind? Has he changed his mind on the Great Commission? What is it time for us to do? Build the temple. And if my priority is not to build the temple, I am disobedient to God. Look at verse 3. Excuse me, verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Hmm. There's their priority. What's their priority? To build whose house? Their own. You see the little phrase paneled houses? Get a chance. Look that word up in Hebrew. Here's what paneled houses meant. They weren't just building a place to live. They were building them some nice places. Paneled, sealed well, good insulation, nice places. They had plenty of time to build their own houses. What, they, what did they not have time for? To build God's house. Now, please look at me, because here's the application for this message today. There's nothing wrong with you having a house. I hope you do have one. Not a thing wrong with that in the world. Not a thing wrong with you having a nice car. Not a thing wrong with you maybe even buying you toys. But if that comes ahead of your priority to give to the kingdom of God, that is wrong. It's wrong. It has to start with the temple first. And then God will take care of you. Mary and I got married in 1973. I was 19, she was eight. Much younger. Very beautiful woman for eight, but I remember in 1973 when we got married, I was a sophomore at the University of Memphis, and I, we made a grand total. I worked as the janitor at Central Church, and she worked at Sears. We made a grand total of $7,000 that year, or 6000 something like that, 6000 And I remember Mary saying, we're going to give 600 of this to the church. You know what my response was? <laughs> That's pretty funny, Mary. That is really, you have always been so funny. I thought I was the funny one. She says, no, we're going to do this. I didn't know what it ever told me. I didn't even know there was such a thing. She said, yeah, that's what we're going to do. I said, we can't do that. I need a new tennis racket for class. I need a racquetball racket. We're not, we can't do that. She says, we have to. That's what believers do. That's what Christians do. She taught me that principle. Now, here we are 44 years later. I think I'm okay. I've eaten all right, maybe too much. God has blessed us. He's taken care of us. And we've always given. Now, I'm not saying, please hang with me for just a moment. The biblical principle for giving is not always 10%. The tithe of the 10% in the Old Testament was a tax. God levied on his children to build the, temp the tabernacle, to build the temple, to handle the Levites, to take care of God's business. He levied, he levied a tax called the tithe. The principle in the New Testament is God doesn't want 10%. You know what he wants? All of it. All of it. Because some of you are capable 
of giving much more than 10%. And you know what we do? We get the 10% and say, woo, I don't have to worry about giving to God anymore. I'm good. And now I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm saying what you do is you get before God and say, Lord, thank you for what you've given to me. You are the owner of everything I have. What do you want? How do you want Mary and I to distribute this, starting with your church, maybe missionaries? Please take this in the way I'm going to, I want to use it as an illustration. And the only one I can illustrate with is us because I don't know what one other person gives to Christ church. I only know what we give because Mary tells me. So there have been times we knew people were hurting and we paid their house note for them. A couple of times, unbeknownst to them, we'd give it to the church and the church would pay their house note. That was above what we give to, to the church. I'm not telling you that so you'll think good things about Randy. I'm saying sometimes God lays things on your heart. You just do it. But let's say, you, let's say you're not giving anything to your church right now. Zero. You need to get along with God and say, okay, we've got to set a goal. We're not going to be able to chunk down 10%. But you've got to start somewhere. Start with 2%. Start with 1%. Start with $5. Start somewhere. And say, all right, Lord, we're going to... This is our goal. This, going to add this, and add this, and add that. Not one person, the church that I grew up in, when you, my, my dad never went to church, not one time my entire life. He came to my, our wedding, and he was drunk that day, but he came to my wedding. It's the only time he was ever in a church that I know of. Well, my mother, the church we grew up in had pledge cards. You'd sign a pledge card every year, and you, what you're going to give to the church that year. My mom, who did not work, she signed a really nice pledge card and turned it in. Like, that's what she planned to give to the church. My dad planned to give how much? Zero. Well, when she didn't honor her pledge, they came to your house. They only came to our house one year. My dad, my dad made it real clear. Uh, don't come here and ask for, for money. Matter of fact, don't come here at all. And so they never came back. And my mom had a good heart. She wanted to give, and every now and then, she'd have some money left over from the groceries, which was rare. She might give some money to the church. My dad wasn't going to let her. But in our household as believers, particularly men, to lead in your home, your family needs to see that that's a, your number one priority is your walk with Jesus Christ and to build his temple. Not from a legalistic point of view. You don't give from, from a legalism. You give because God has given to you. God has given to you. And you want to give back. You want to be part of building that temple because it's important. So look at the other thing they're neglecting in verse 4. It's a time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins. They simply were content. Apparently they had the resources because they're building themselves what? Really nice houses. So they had the resources. It's not about resources. What's it about? Look at the top of your outline. It's about what? Priorities. Not about resources. It's about priorities. I've got to start. We're Lord. So their disobedience and not doing God, building God's temple had led them to make excuses. It's not the right time. We, maybe we don't, we don't have the money. We built these houses. They simply were content in their disobedience. Now, what did they need? Verse 5. What do they need? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, third time now, here it is. Consider your ways. And by the way, you look at your Bible, at the end of the, that statement, consider your ways, what's the punctuation? 
an exclamation point. So what is God saying to them through Haggai? Consider your ways. Pay attention. God is talking to you. What is their need? First thing God says, because you're neglecting the priorities, thus says the Lord of hosts. Number one, you need to reflect and pause. Just pause for a moment. Verse five, consider your ways. Stop. Think. Meditate. Look down to verse seven. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. In Hebrew especially, but just logically. But in Hebrew especially, when something's repeated that quickly, what is it for? It's for emphasis. God is saying, here's where you are. You're building your own houses. You're not building my house. Stop. Reflect. Consider your ways. Just pause. I sent you back here. Brought you out of Babylon. Set you free from bondage to rebuild my house. And you're not even working on it. For 16 years, you've just sat here idle. Consider your ways. That's their first need, just to reflect and to pause. A guy named Craig Groeschel recently wrote a book called The Christian Atheist. It's the name of the book. That oxymoron, The Christian Atheist. Here's the theme of his book. Quote, many Christians today believe in God, but they live as if he doesn't exist. In other words, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I really appreciate that heaven thing. That's nice. If I need you, I'll let you know. Jesus didn't call us to just die and go home. That's our eternal reward. What did he say? You want to follow me? What are the three steps? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And then you can follow me. I hope you understand the context in which he said that. In, under the Roman Empire, if you picked up a cross, where were you headed? To be executed to death in the most painful way a human being has ever discovered to execute another human being. So here's what Jesus said. Okay, you, you say you want to follow me? First step is you've got to deny yourself. We'd have trouble just with that one, right? You've got to deny yourself. Then go ahead and pick up your cross and let's go be crucified. Then you can follow me. Then you can follow me. That's why meditating on Scripture is so important. Reflect. Pause. What's going on? In Lamentations 3, the Bible says, let us examine our ways and test them. Let us examine our ways and test them and then return to the Lord. Remember the story of the prodigal son? You've heard it a million times. You've heard it preached a million times. You've probably taught it yourself at some point. Remember the whole story of the prodigal son. It's just one statement in there. It's so cool. When did the prodigal son decide that it would be good to go home now? Remember what the Bible says? When he came to his senses. We still use that phrase today, right? Would you come to your senses? I use that with my son all the time. Would you, would you come to your senses? He was over there slopping hog. You know, he he'd, he'd wasted all the inheritance. And it says, when he came to his senses, what did he do? He said, you know, I had it pretty good. The slaves with my dad got it better than this. I think I'll go home. Such a beautiful story. And when he comes home, how does the father welcome him? Not just with open arms, he throws him a big party. And the other son didn't like that. But what's the message to us about the father? Come to your senses and come home. Your dad still loves you. That hadn't changed. That's what he's saying here. Stop. Reflect. 
Consider your ways. And if your ways are not where they need to be, come home and do what I told you to do. And by the way, you'll be blessed for that. What did the prodigal son get? He got the fatty calf. He got the ring. He got the robe. All pictures of ownership by the father. He was his son. Wasting his life and riotous living, the quote. And he came to his senses. He went home. So then verse 6, what's the second thing they need to do? They need to reexamine their priorities. Verse 6. You've sown much. You bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled. You clothe yourselves, but you know, nobody's warm. He who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Verse 9. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I, God, blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Without going into great detail, I hope you see the very simple thing God is saying to them. Just stop. You're sowing, you're trying to do all this, and you're running around. And what's the result you're getting? You're taking all that money, you're putting it in a bag, and what's in the bottom of the bag? Holes. What did Jesus say? Lay up your treasure where? In heaven. How do you do that? By building a temple. Focusing on building the temple. What's Matthew 6.33 say? The words of Jesus Christ from his lips in the Sermon on the Mount. What did he say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what? All these things will be added unto you. I'm going to take care of you. I will. You're my bride, my children, you're my body. I'm going to take care of you. Refocus. Reexamine your priorities. And then realize, verse 10, that it's the pruning of God. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. God is saying, you were doing all this, you were doing all this, but you were ignoring what I told you to do, so I had to discipline you. I had to discipline you. It didn't stop being his people, but he had to get their attention. Have you ever disciplined your children? Of course you do. And why do you discipline them? We get them refocused to do what's right. To realize that what you're doing is wrong. Now come back and do what's right. And you don't want to do it, but why do you do it? Because you love them. You will do what a father or a mother is supposed to do to disciple your children in a Christian home. You'll do that. Now, verse 8. You get the revel and the pleasure of God. I love this verse. Verse 8. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. Here's the solution to spiritual apathy. Talked earlier about application. Verse 8 is very powerful, but yet very simple. God says, here's your need. After you stop and examine your priorities and you realize that I'm disciplining you, let me, here's how you solve the problem. Get back to work. Pretty simple, right? Go back to work on the temple. I told you to do it 18 years ago. I haven't changed my mind. Go get back to work on the temple. And notice the two things that will happen when they get back to doing God's work. Number one, he'll take pleasure in that. Don't you want to please your father? The chief end of man is to glorify God. 
said, that's what he said happens. Two things. One, I'll take pleasure in that. And two, I'll be glorified. And by the way, to glorify God means to give a correct estimate of what he's worth to those that are around. That's the job of the church. Because everybody you know has an opinion about God. Even if they're an atheist, they got an opinion about God, right? What do they need to hear from us? What's my opinion about God? What does God mean to me? That's what it means to glorify. To us as individuals, us corporately, what does God mean to us? We want him to be glorified. Revel in his pleasure, not mine, his, that, I, that he will be pleased. God takes pleasure in that. One last thing and then we're done. Notice the results. I love this. Look at verse, drop down to verse 14. Verse 14. Yeah, we'll start in verse 12. Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, the remnant, those who came back from Babylon, the people, they're back in the land. They're, notice it begins with the leadership, then the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. The people's response, they feared, they got it. They began to say, all right, God, what is it you want? What is it you want? Verse 13, Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. I hope you see that and I hope you can revel and really understand that. Here's what God's saying. I, didn't, I never stopped loving you, but I want you to get back to work doing what I want you to do. And as you get back to work doing what I want you to do, I'm with you. I never left. You were just ignoring me. But I'm with you. C.S. Lewis said, the only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. It has to be our whole lives. Now notice what happens to them. Look at verse 14. So the Lord, notice the words, the verbs, stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. He stirred them up. They were moved by God's presence, his promise, his power, the alliteration for all the preachers out there. And they were stirred up. They were moved, verse 14, the latter part. Now notice, their spirit was stirred. The end of verse 14, and what did they do? They came and they worked on the house of the Lord, their God. Boy, I hope you see that. They were moved, stirred. And the simple response, application, God, what do you want me to do? It's always there in Scripture. What do you want me to do? What did he want them to do? Work on the temple. What did they do? They started working on the temple. Haggai is one of the few prophets that you see that actually saw positive response. They responded. said, we're going to go build God's temple because that's what he told us to do. So what's the application for us? What's the call on our lives? It's to build the temple. Lay up our treasure in heaven, not on earth. Just recently, Mary showed me this article last week, and I was so moved by it or impressed by it, I said, I'm going to use that. This was an AP article from uh, a week ago. 
all the, the mess that's going on in California, the wildfires and all that has been going on out there. Here's the title of the article. Vineyard workers and owners forced into same struggle. Just going to read you a couple of quotes. The deadliest and most destructive wildfires in California history, this is right now, one week ago in our nation, imperiled both the low-wage workers who harvest the nation's most valuable wine grapes and the wealthy entrepreneurs who employ them. Everyone was fighting to preserve the things most precious to them, families, belongings, and businesses. The affluent slept alongside the migrant workers as they combed through the donated supplies. Even some of the well-off had nothing but the clothes on their back. It's humbling. The fire was, and here's the, the quote that I want to make sure you see, the fire was the great leveler in a region where the wealthiest 1% make 20 times more money than the rest. But they couldn't stop that fire, could they? It came. Everybody we deal with in our lives every day will one day face eternity. And you and I carry for them the one thing that will allow them to step into eternity and have life eternal. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to build his temple. So here's the bottom line for us as a church. Everything that we want to do going forward, and I'm excited about our church, everything that we want to do going forward costs money. It just does. Everything costs money. So all I'm saying to you and I'm challenging you is just stop, consider your ways, your priorities, in this one arena, are we focusing on building the temple with the resources that God owns? Or am I just kind of, God, if I need you, I'll be there and I'll, I'll toss some money in every now and then. Would you bow your heads, please? Just for a moment, bow your heads. Lord, I simply pray as the one you allowed to deliver this message today that the Holy Spirit would use it, not Randy, that they would hear from you, God. They would hear your message, each heart beginning with me, every heart individually, every family. We just get along with you, Father, and say, Lord, what is it you want me to do with my finances? Am I honoring you or am I not? We can't lie to you, Father. You know. Every one of us would do that. Focus on what you want, not what we want, your priorities, not ours, not to build our kingdom, but to build yours, and that it's a privilege that we're allowed to do that. So I pray for each of us, Father, even as we close out our service today, we'd spend this time in, in, as we worship together, praying in our hearts about where are we with you. And then, Father, we'd simply leave here and go do what you tell us to do. Build that temple. Build that temple. That's a privilege, Father. The highest call on a person, a human being's life is to be a, a stone in that temple, to be a Christian. We thank you, Father, for this day. We commit this time to you. And if there's one person here, Father, who does not know Jesus, this would be their moment where they would simply say, Lord, forgive me. Save me. I want to be a Christ follower. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing. And if you like me, Brother John, pray with you. We will be down here. Marcus is here somewhere. We'll get him down here as well. If you'd like one of us to pray with you, we'll be right down here.
moon and stars they wept The morning sun was dead The Savior of the world was